welcome to Kingwood United Methodist Church. Thank you for joining us today. Wherever you're listening from and whatever service you're listening to, we strongly believe because of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there is always more to life. Uh, my name is Pastor Jeremy Bass. It's good, for, uh, good to be with you all here this morning in the Vine. I'm the primary preacher of our contemporary service and also pastor of discipleship here at the church. We are in the middle of our Pursuing Perfection sermon series. I think the image is up on the screen. And it's looking at the different ways in which our culture uh, calls us to pursue perfection. And how oftentimes we have this cultural expectation on us to be perfect. We have this cultural expectation on us to live our life a certain way, to have our house look a certain way, to have our family be a certain way. And it's almost like it's this 1950s Reader's Digest idealized view of the family. And how we're often pursuing perfection based on what the world says. And then we hear the call of Christ to be perfected in love. And are we pursuing the call of Christ to be perfect? Are we pursuing holiness and sanctification and becoming more and more like God? For the first few parts of our sermon series, we talked about the ways in which uh, we can love God more, the ways in which we can pursue sanctification by our love with God. In these last few weeks, we're going to be talking about the ways in which we can love our neighbor. Now, if Jesus says uh, that the love of God and love of neighbor is where all the law of Moses hangs off of, then what does it mean to love God? And we're going to look at what does it mean to love our neighbor? How can we pursue holiness and sanctification with our love of neighbor? Before we get into scripture, I want to talk about a German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it in German. I don't speak German. Uh, I barely speak Spanish, uh, so we'll just have to go with that. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, He is the father of nihilism. And if you know what nihilism is, it's a philosophical uh, framework of thinking that the, there is no God, there is no purpose, that the whole world is absurd, and you look at the absurdity of the world and you despair. Now, a lot of the foundations of nihilistic philosophy is found in the writings of Nietzsche. He was a 19th century German philosopher. And a lot of the philosophies of our day and age can be traced back to Nietzsche's way of thinking and Nietzsche's writing. His most famous phrase that you may have heard is, God is dead and we have killed him. That was kind of Nietzsche's most famous thing, is talking about God being dead. What he means by that is he was the first philosopher to understand the implications of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment philosophy, which was uh, the philosophy of the founding fathers, uh, which divided faith and reason. That reason is all that we can know, and we can know it because we can see it, we can touch it, we can taste it, that it's through our senses and our observations that we can truly know what is real. And faith, therefore, was cast aside and was uh, made separate from reason, and therefore God and the things of religion and the things of the spirit were put in the realm of the unknowable. Because you can't put God in a test tube, you can't see the divine realm, you can't see the spiritual reality. And Nietzsche was the first person to look at this enlightenment theory of the divide between faith and reason, that if God is unknowable, if we have divided God from the rest of our life, then we can just cast God aside. That we don't need God. That God is dead and we have killed him. Nietzsche recognized this shift 
that in essence, with the enlightenment that we have killed our need for God, and in light of not needing a God anymore, we need to rethink what our purpose is as humanity. What is our goal? What is it we're striving for? If God is dead, what are we looking towards, and what is human's purpose now? And to Nietzsche, in light of the world in which there is no God, he looked and said that the new purpose is to become what he called the Ubermensch, or the Superman, the one who is able to recognize this new reality and to live into it. And for Nietzsche, the ultimate goal of humanity, or the Superman, was this desire for control, the will to power, that power is all that mattered, that it's the strong who will exert their control over the weak, and they will lead humanity into a brighter and better future. You can see Nietzsche's philosophy kind of undergirding fascist socialism in Nazi Germany. And this is where they got this idea that it's the strong who win, the strong who exert their power and authority over the weak. And this quote by Nietzsche, I think, sums up his philosophy. He says this, What is good? What is the good thing? What is it that we should pursue? What is good? He says, All that heightens the feeling of power, the will to power, power itself in man. What is bad? All that proceeds from weakness. What is happiness? The feeling that power increases, a resistance that is overcome. This quote really just sums up his philosophy that the good that we're pursuing is no longer the pursuit of loving God and neighbor, it's the pursuit of power. The pursuit of that feeling of that happiness is feeling powerful. That the good is exerting power over the weak. And doesn't this sound kind of familiar? This desire for power, this desire for control, this desire to exert our will over the other. I think it's familiar because it's how our secular world acts and thinks. That power has become the new main virtue of secular society. That power is the ultimate good, and anything that flows from power is good, and anything that flows from weakness, which Nietzsche said was Christianity, is bad. And so what does this have to do with us? What does this have to do with you and me? I think it has to do with us because this is the underlying way in which our culture thinks. I think this is the underlying pursuit that a lot of our culture pursues, that it's this pursuit of power. And so as we think about our culture and we think about these different voices, as we're talking about pursuing perfection and pursuing perfection in love, we need to be aware, what is it that's speaking into our life? What are the cultural voices and the cultural pressures that are asking us to conform to? I think it's asking us to conform to this pursuit of power. For example, in politics, Uh, that we desire to elect politicians who will do whatever it takes to get power away from them and back to us. That I only want to elect a strong and powerful leader. And there's a sense of despondency uh, when our political candidate doesn't win. Like not just sad and upset, but a sense of despair when our political candidate doesn't win because we've lost that good, we've lost that ultimate good of power. Academics that I am the smartest person and that you need to come to me for all the answers. Even in our spirituality that I am the one who knows best. 
and I am the one who can solve all of your problems. Or even in our family, I'm the one in charge. I don't answer to my spouse, they answer to me. Looking at these examples a bit more practically, uh, when we argue, do we always have to be right? Do we have to get the last word in? And we have to win an argument no matter what the cost. Or there are people who say, you know, I'm just someone who just tells it like, like it is. I just speak truth all the time. And they say that as a way to justify the way in which they speak truth or the way in which they talk is a way to justify their meanness and the way that they speak to others, that I have the power to say what I want and I'm gonna say it no matter what. Maybe a shaming, critical spirit, that I am the one that is full of knowledge and you are the one who is failing and you need to know how weak you are. So we look at the ways of the world and the influences of our culture and the influences of how we talk to one another and how we treat one another. We see that Nietzsche, I think, captures the human nature pretty well. The human nature, the human sinful nature of that desire to use power to dominate over others and exert our will onto others. And so when we look to the pages of Scripture we see a God who is different than that world. We're presented of a Jesus who treats and acts differently than the world around him. We're gonna be opening up to John 8, verses one through 11. This is Jesus, says this. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus and the woman were left standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, why, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and sin no more. Thanks again for joining us for today's message. We will return to the sermon in a moment, but first, we would like to ask for you to rate, share, and subscribe to our podcast. We believe God is doing some amazing things here at KUMC, and your feedback helps our church to reach new listeners that we wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Now, let's get back to the work. When we read these gospel stories, they tell us about what the heart of God is. We look at Jesus' actions towards others. We see the heart of God made manifest. But we also see that Jesus gives us an example to imitate, that the call of Scripture is for us to be imitators of Christ, and that includes the way that Jesus interacts with people around him. 
And here we have Jesus. He's clearly in a position of power. He's a teacher. He's teaching those around him. The, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees bring a situation to him, bring a legal question to him. Yes, it's a trap, but they bring it to him because they recognize that he has authority and power over people. And so they bring it to him and notice what Jesus does with that power. Notice what he does with that power. He does not lord it over this woman. He does not shame her. He does not use the rightful power of anyone that should have power in all the world. It would be Jesus Christ, Son of God. And notice that he who has rightful power over everything, that he who has rightful power to judge this woman uses his power to benefit the weak. He directs his power back at her accusers. He uses his power to benefit the weak. Because if you look at the story, uh, it says that the woman was caught in adultery, which means where, where's the man in all this? Under Levitical law, the man and the woman should have both been brought. Why is it just the woman was brought here? And so you see Jesus using his power, using his authority, and his dealings with this woman, we see the expression of God's gentleness and meekness towards her. We see the expression of God's gentleness and meekness towards her. I'm going to talk about meekness really quick because I, I think it's one of those churchy words. We have a lot of good churchy words that we say a lot, but we don't have good definitions for So I'm going to define meekness for us. In kind of my study, this is what I came across. Meekness is controlled strength, the humility to recognize your power in a situation and choosing to use it to benefit the other. And it's important for us to understand that meekness is not weakness. It says in Scripture that Moses was meek. It says in Scripture that David was meek. It says in Scripture that Jesus was meek. And those are not people we think of as being weak leaders or as being weak people. That meekness is about how we use that power. That Nietzschean culture would say, well, when we get power, what we do then is we exert our will on others. And that is the ultimate good. And the way of Jesus and the way of the cross is I have power and I use it for the benefit of others because of my love for them. That this is the way of Jesus, of meekness and gentleness in our dealings with one another. That we are called to be different than the world. That we are called to be different than the world. Matthew 5, 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. When I was in seminary, uh, one of the people who came and spoke at chapel said, do we believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about? Do we believe that Jesus is wise? When we read scripture and we read about the wisdom of Jesus, do we truly believe that he is giving us supernatural wisdom or we just think these are cool, pithy sayings, these are cool, religious things of Jesus, but really, when you look at the reality of the world, Jesus, you're speaking foolishness because the meek don't inherit the earth. But if we read scripture and if we read the wisdom of Jesus, do we truly regard it as wisdom for our lives? Or do we discard it as foolishness? I'm reading through uh, 1 Corinthians right now, and I came across this in 1 Corinthians 2. It says this, we, meaning Paul, we do, however, 
speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught to us by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. That the blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In the wisdom of the world, that is utter nonsense, that is utter foolishness. But we who have been claimed by God, we who have the Holy Spirit within us, recognize that it is through meekness and gentleness that we will inherit the earth. It is through the ways in which we use our power, the ways in which we treat one another, that it is different than the wisdom of the world. And we see in this passage of the woman caught in adultery that Jesus is gentle with her and that teaches us that God is gentle with us, that the foundation of our gentleness towards one another is rooted in how God deals and treats with us, that God is gentle with us. We see this in Jesus' interactions throughout the Gospels. This isn't just a one-time-off story, but Jesus, every time he goes and talks with sinners, he treats them with gentleness. And especially we can see this here, that God's heart of meekness and gentleness towards this woman is just like his heart towards us. That God is gentle and meek towards this woman in her sin. And in our sin, God is gentle and meek towards us. That God uses his power not to crush us, even though that's well within his right but he uses his power for our benefit, which is meekness. In Genesis 15, Abraham, when he makes a covenant with God, a covenant was a a legal contract. It wasn't just a made-up Bible term. It was a, a word that was very common in those days. It was a legal contract, usually between two nations. It was usually between like a, a very powerful uh, nation and then an inferior vassal. And they would make pledges towards one another. And when they would make a covenant, what they would do is they would take animals and they would split them in half like they do in Genesis 15. And they split these animals in half. And what would happen is the weaker, the vassal, the weaker party would walk through those animals that are split in half as a way of saying, if I fail to uphold my uh, covenantal duties, if I fail to uphold my covenant responsibilities, may what happened to these animals happen to me. It's like a fulfillment of this is a fun, I am committing to do this. And in Genesis, we see this. Genesis 15, it says this. The Lord said to Abraham, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram. And Abraham brought all these to him and he cut them in two and he arranged them in halves opposite of each other. See, he's making that covenantal type setting. But then it twists it. It says this, verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. A little layer down, verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and it passed through the pieces. That when God made his covenant with Abraham, 
It's not the weaker party, Abraham, who passes through the animals. It's God himself. That God says, over my dead body will I fail to uphold this covenant. That God uses his power. That God uses the authority that he rightfully has for our benefit. For our benefit. And God's example to us is how we ought to treat one another. God's example to us is how we ought to treat one another. I don't know if you may have noticed or not, but our tendency over this past year has not been to show gentleness and meekness towards one another. Just think about this past election and the way that we talk to one another. Or even with COVID, and regardless of where you stand on issues, the way that we treat one another has not been gentle. It's not shown meekness. It's shown and reflected the way of the world more often than the way of Christ. That is what we have been mirroring is the world more often than the church. And if we are going to be different, if we are called to pursue perfection in love, love of God and love of neighbor, if we are going to pursue this holiness and sanctification, if we are going to be the church of Jesus Christ like he has called us to be, then we need to be different than the society around us. We have to be different, and that includes meaning we have to treat others differently that we disagree with. We have to treat others differently Next week, we're going to be talking about loving our enemies, but even within the church, we're going to disagree with each other. We're going to not get on the same page. We're going to argue, but the way in which we argue, the way in which we talk to each other, the way in which we love each other can be different than the way that the world does it. It has to be different. Are we treating our brothers and sisters in Christ with gentleness and meekness like God does? Are we treating those in our family with gentleness and meekness? Are we treating those we work with with gentleness and meekness? Are we treating our coworkers, our fellow students, with gentleness and meekness like Christ calls us to? Are we being imitators of Christ or imitators of the world? And this call to gentleness, this call to meekness is found throughout the New Testament. I'm just going to run through a bunch of scriptures to show that this is a common thread woven throughout, that this call to be different. 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed because of your slander. Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? Because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Paul says this in Ephesians, as a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. And what does that look like? Be completely humble and be gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. 
Titus 3.2 says this, slander no one, be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards the people that uh, deserve to get my gentleness. Oh no, that says, uh, be gentle towards everyone. Philippians 4.5 says this, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And finally, the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. You know, I hear people talk about the fruit of the Spirit. I often hear people say, Lord, give me more peace. Lord, give me more joy. Lord, give me more patience. Uh, You don't hear a lot of people say, Lord, give me more gentleness towards others. You don't hear that lifted up as a fruit of the Spirit. But there it is right there on the pages of Scripture. And how much greater, friends, would our witness to the world be? How much greater would our impact in the community be if we took this call to gentleness and meekness seriously? If we took this call of God that the meek shall inherit the earth, that if we want to be inheritors of the earth, that we ought to be gentle and meek towards those around us, just like God is with us. Like Jesus in this passage, he resolves the situation with meekness and gentleness. He turns his accusers' accusation against them and they walk away and Jesus wins in this story. And yet the end result is that this woman is called to repentance. That being gentle and meek doesn't mean we sacrifice truth. It's about the presentation of that truth. It's about the way we speak to one another. Are we going to be different than the vision that Nietzsche sets out about the purpose of humanity? That this vision of power and control that is so prevalent in our society, are we going to be different than that? Are we going to follow the way of Jesus and be gentle towards those around us? 